Idaho is important for two reasons. Now, there's more than two reasons. <laughs> and I'm sure if you live there, the reasons are innumerable, as bountiful as the lakes and mountains, as rarefied as the goats on Scotchman's Peak. But for the purposes of the freeform jazz odyssey we're about to embark on, and trust me, it's wild, you will leave a changed person, let's just focus on two. The first thing is North Idaho's impact on its region, our region. The political and cultural state of play in Idaho isn't just a beacon calling true believers to the gem state. It's a sort of radiant energy that bathes its neighbors in a certain aura, or maybe more precisely, a pheromone, something wild, either repulsive or intoxicating, depending on your kink, <laughs> depending on the sort of person you are. Either way, though, Idaho draws people. The reductive story during the pandemic is that the Hicks were whooping it up and endangered us all, but that's not exactly right. Lots of Idaho friends texted me talking about how the streets and parking lots of Coeur d'Alene were often clogged with out-of-state plates. It was a tourist town, so that's normal in a normal year, but this was during COVID, and by those people's counts, like 90% of those plates were from Washington. Similarly, I saw all the time, way more than usual, Idaho plates in Spokane. And not like out at the parks or downtown. These were people parked outside mundane places like Super One Foods. People were coming in from Idaho to do their grocery shopping. And not like specialty hippie grocery shopping. It was Super One. No shade, I'm just saying. You got the Rosars family of grocery stores in North Idaho too. So if you're coming to Spokane to shop at Super One, you're not doing it because you like the produce. Here's why this is interesting to me. Border of Washington and Idaho is well-defined, but our respective governments' responses to just about everything, pretty much, but acutely the response to the pandemic could not have been more stark. Despite those differences, the border is also porous. It's permeable. And it was fascinating to watch people moving back and forth. Folks from Washington looking east for a little freedom, a little individualism, maybe a respite, honestly, from the nonstop stress of the pandemic, especially the early pandemic. Folks from Idaho headed west, seeking, I don't know what, you know, safety, community, a collective sense that when there's danger, it's best to stick together. But even that tale is a little too simple. The Inlander just wrote a story last week that Spokane County's official vaccine numbers are undercounted. They're low. Because a bunch of vaccine groupies from Washington jumped the line, crossed the border, and got their vaccines early. Because clinics in Idaho had more doses than willing arms... And after a while, they were happy to jab basically anyone with a shoulder. The state databases don't communicate with each other, so those vaccines aren't represented in Washington's system. The point, I guess, is that there's a lot of North Idaho and Eastern Washington, and anybody who's lived here for any amount of time could have guessed that. But there also seems to be more Eastern Washington and Idaho than we might expect, or that maybe we once knew but have come to forget. I'm not at all trying to downplay how batshit wild Idaho is, especially North Idaho, especially right now, and we will get to that in a sec. But if we try to pretend that border is hard and fast, though, with reckless Randians and Nazis on one side and sainted good nicks all riding with Biden on the other, we'll miss an opportunity to hold a lens up to a pretty big aspect of ourselves. We're kin in an important way. And if we were to deny that fact, we'd miss an opportunity to peer down the lens, a microscope, onto a Petri dish about to be overrun by the experiment happening within. An experiment that could, because of that permeable border, 
easily spill over into Washington too. It actually did spill over into Washington several times last year during the various protests. A bunch of counties in Eastern Oregon are trying to secede right now and join Idaho. So the Petri dish has already spilled over there. There's no real chance of greater Idaho becoming a thing. That's what people are calling the succession movement, greater Idaho. It includes like North, Northern California too. And there's even less of a chance of Eastern Washington joining them, but still. I think it's vitally important to pay attention to the experiment itself because the experiment isn't just happening in Idaho. That's the second reason this is so important. Let's keep going with this Petri dish metaphor and see how long we can torture it. Idaho is one of a couple of laboratories testing out and refining a plan the right wants to deploy nationwide. Not the Mitt Romney right. The Tucker Carlson meets QAnon meets anti-vax YouTube right. We're going to talk in a moment about the movement to ban an academic discipline called critical race theory from all public schools in Idaho, including state colleges and universities. One of the first people that start sounding the klaxons about critical race theory was Tucker Carlson, the hair invoke adjacent, let's create a white ethno state Fox News host. So he kind of started the conversation. Idaho was the first of five states to make a law banning it. And now 17 other states are considering doing the same. This is just one example of Idaho being the test market of the new right. One of the things that people in the 80s took pride in about Spokane was that it was a, t- it was a test market for all kinds of foods and goods and stuff. It was like we got pizza-flavored Pringles first. I, Idaho, especially North Idaho, Kootenai County, but increasingly the entire state is like the test market for the extreme right. So instead of like testing out Coke 2, they're testing out bathroom bills and abridging free speech. And that particular drama might seem hopelessly fringe, weirdly esoteric, wildly disconnected from concrete concerns like lower taxes and abortion rights, the traditional meat and potatoes of the American right, at least during the era of the moral majority, the era we've all lived through. But it's not fringe. Donald Trump lost the presidency, but he so thoroughly captured the Republican base, his apostles have been able to have their way in many places. So much of the theorizing about this stuff, much of the planned development, seems to be happening among the chattering right-wing media classes, which doesn't just involve lawmakers, and actually maybe many of the traditional uh, Republican elites are sidelined in these conversations. It's the new Trump wing of the party, which includes celebrities like Tucker Carlson, but it also includes random YouTube celebrities you've probably never heard of. They're the one driving policy ideas, and then places like Idaho are where the true believers are seeing what they can do to put those ideas into practice. And so the Petri dish might also be a crystal ball, a glimpse into one possible future for the GOP. Okay, who the hell could possibly parse all of this for us? I'm glad you asked. We talked at length Lengthy length, so this is going to be another two-part episode. Calling it back with Zach Hagedon, the co-founder and current editor of the Sandpoint Reader. Zach's a journalist, he's a historian, and you know what? For my money, he's a philosopher. I don't know if he would describe himself that way, and maybe I'm being ungenerous with journalists in general and overly broad with my definition of philosophy, but he's the sort of person that can spend all day in the details of an individual news story, reporting it out, doing that work, and then in aggregate, taking all of the stories he's written over the years and all of the trends he's witnessed and zooming out and not extrapolating because it's all based on fact, but reaching a conclusion about why something is the way it is. 
Here he is explaining the ratcheting effect that pulls Idaho further and further right and the almost shadow government orchestrating that effect. And that's really what characterizes Idaho politics, unlike many other states, is that we live in a single party state. And it has been that way for a very long time. If you have no opponents on sort of the left or whatever, like across the aisle, then you're going to start finding enemies within. And the Idaho Freedom Foundation, I guarantee you, does not spend one minute of its day thinking about the Idaho Democrats. (laughs) Right. They're thinking about other Republican lawmakers and trying to figure out which ones are not conservative enough and then putting pressure on them to weed them out to enforce like this fidelity. Good stuff, right? So that's Zach in all of his glory. And maybe most importantly, he's a lifelong spud stater. He's lived in Sandpoint. He's lived in Boise. He's lived in parts in between. He lived in Pullman, which is kind of like, you know, you get dual citizenship if you're in the Moscow Pullman area. He was also one of my first editors when I was trying to make it as a writer. Because the Sandpoint Reader was a startup, he paid me an Irish whiskey, which is where I developed my love of Irish whiskey, one of many things I owe Zach a debt of gratitude for. I would write an article or two a week, usually music or film reviews. And every few weeks, whenever I could scrounge up the gas money, I would drive up to Sandpoint. And Zach, who moonlit at a bar to pay for the privilege of bootstrapping a newspaper, would line up shot after shot of Jameson until I could barely walk. Then we would go party when he got off. And one night at the oldest bar in Sandpoint, an elderly woman walked up to me, looked me dead in the eye. And without saying a word, she put a lit cigarette out on my arm. I still have a little bit of a scar. The point of that story said, I know Idaho a little bit too. It's the kind of place where memories take on a mythological quality. That period of my life helped make me the person I am for better or worse. And for that, I owe Idaho a very, very strange debt. I love it, and it scares the shit out of me. In the second half of this interview, we're going to really dive in, really hone in on one specific place in Idaho, drill deep, and then go sort of get the bird's eye view again of the state level and what it means for how these fights that have been playing out, you know, in isolation in places like Kootenai County for almost two decades now, certainly with furor for the last decade have now spread statewide. And so we'll get into that in part two. For now, though, we're going to whipsaw around the state, checking in on a bunch of loosely connected controversies and increasingly ridiculous scandals. Buckle up for a rubbernecking ride through Idaho culture and politics with Zach Hagedon of the Sandpoint Reader. Coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 38. Zach Hagedon, welcome to Range, man. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you, Luke. It's about time. (laughs) It is about time. We've been threatening to do this for a really long time. I've been threatening to actually come up to Sandpoint, Idaho, where you reside and and live and work, and it hasn't quite happened. You should have been maybe one of our first guests, but we're making up for that now. Well, I mean, Sandpoint's not big enough for the both of us, so it's probably better (laughs) we're doing this remotely. 
Uh, that's true. Yeah, I agree. So you've, you've lived in Sandpoint most of your life. And when you weren't living in Sandpoint, you went to college in Boise and then worked down in Boise a few different times. You've been an AP reporter and an editor at two different newspapers, I think. Feel free to check me on any of this stuff in a moment. You were the founder of the Sandpoint Reader Alt Weekly up in Sandpoint, which you are back currently editing. That's how you and I met a very long time ago. What, 2004? Five? Yeah. Something like that? We're getting old. Yeah, four, I believe. Uh, And then you were also the editor of the Boise Weekly, which is a kind of a close to an inlander sized all weekly down in a close to Spokane sized town in southern Idaho. Is that right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. See, this is why I love Zach. He's going to edit me right on the page. Listen. Um, So I'll run through here and correct you on a a few of these points. Okay, go. I was born and proudly raised in Sandpoint. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Second generation born here. My great grandparents came from Montana in the early, early 20th century. Uh, I actually went to college in Caldwell, which is outside of Boise at the College of Idaho. Yeah, kind of splitting hairs, but... Liberal arts school, very small. I have moved back and forth between the Treasure Valley and Sandpoint a total of six times since <laughs> 1999, uh, which is not, has not been good for my finances or basically anything else, although I've somehow managed to cobble together uh, this career that you were referring to. Uh, I did work at the Associated, Repre- <laughs> at the Associated Press, uh, for a time in the Capitol at the State House Bureau. I worked at the Idaho Business Review as a business reporter right around the time when the economy collapsed in 2008. So that was a good oh, time for a business reporter. That. Yeah. And then I was business editor at Boise Weekly immediately after that. Uh, did the reader, as you mentioned, uh, where we met in a case of mistaken identity, yep. which I think is one of the best origin stories ever. And yes, I, I co-founded the same point reader with uh, two partners and was the editor of Boise Weekly. So that's where I am now, back in Sandpoint at the editor-in-chief of the Sandpoint Reader. I no longer own it. It's owned by Ben Olson, who was my first and only paid employee. Uh, he, he actually resurrected the paper in 2014 after I closed it in 2012. So I am now uh, an employee of the paper that I founded <laughs> and working for my only other employee, who is now my boss. Well, I, we've, I've had Leah Satilli on this podcast before. She was my editor in college. I ended up being her editor at some point at the Inlander. She then became my editor again. So yeah, this is, these things have a way of cycling in, in small media, I think. Well, and I was her copy editor for a time, as you might remember. <laughs> That's right. So you, you also did copy editing for the Inlander. I was a columnist for the Inlander too. Jacob hired me in 2017. I did, I think, two years worth of steady column writing there. So you've got a broad base in uh, Inland Northwest and, you know, Southern Idaho media. You know, so just briefly, without digressing, we've got a lot to get to. There's so much to talk about. But the case of mistake and identity was that Zach gave me my first real writing gig in about 2004, 2005, because he stumbled across a blog I'd been writing uh, and mistook me for a different Luke Baumgarten. And as I may or may not have told the story before, as far as I know, there are three Luke Baumgartens in the world. Two of them just happened to live between, you know, Spokane and uh, Moscow Pullman area. So I met my real Luke Baumgarten. Yeah. So he had known a pretender in high school, a pretender to the throne. One of these days, it might get a little Highlandery up in up in here with the two Luke Baumgartens, but only one real case of mistaken identity, and it was an error in my favor. So I'll I'll, I'll hang with it. So suffice it to say, everything we've already talked about, you know Idaho better than anyone I know, and so I couldn't think of a better person to talk to about just what what in Tarnation, what in Sam Hill is happening over there. So so thanks for coming, man. I'm so happy to be here. 
I, I don't have the generation's deep history that you do, but as a guy who once had an elderly woman put out a lit cigarette on my forearm in this 219 lounge on the main street of Sandpoint, Idaho, I do feel qualified to say that it is a wild place in normal times. It seems especially wild in Idaho right now. So is that fair? Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. I've never seen anything like this. Okay. I, I, I think back to when I first started kind of covering Idaho politics in earnest, which is probably around 2004, 2005. So that's a fair chunk of time. Yeah. Back then, the craziest stuff we would see in the Idaho legislature, at least, was, you know, like people who wanted to replace uh, paper currency with gold and silver. Right. So like Ron Paul stuff. Yeah. I mean, that was about as wild as it got. Uh, now that seems just positively tame compared to the things that we've seen, especially over the last, you know, five years. But really going back to, I'd say, 2000, 2008, thereabouts, uh, things just ramped up. And now now the levels of, you know, wackadoodlery, what do we want to call it, uh, are just like off the charts. And I got to thank Ann Helen Peterson from BuzzFeed for that word, wackadoodle. Wackadoodlery. One of my favorite words. <laughs> which she which she actually used in a piece to refer to what's going on in Idaho politics. So I, I think that's a good word. And she deserves credit for bringing it back into usage. Was that what happens when Republicans don't have anyone to fight? Was it that? Yeah. The Kootenai yeah. County article? Uh-huh. Yeah. So that, Great piece. That is now a... Uh, so I've, I've linked to that piece before talking about North Idaho College, which we'll get to in a second, but um, I'll, I'll try to find it and link to it again if I think about it. So broad strokes before we dive in, I kind of want to do a, a little potpourri around the state, a little uh, lightning round of discrete things that have been happening and then maybe try to tie them together. How much of this is tied to the national sort of Trump QAnon stuff of the, the national Republican base or, and how much of it has sort of specific Idaho dynamics that we'll need to tease out. Well, one thing is this QAnon aspect to uh, sort of extreme conservative okay. politics. I don't see a lot of evidence of that here. Uh, there, there's the odd, you know, truck or car or whatever you'll see driving around with a yeah. red, white, and blue kind of cue on the window. But I haven't seen that make its way into the to the rhetoric uh, of anybody who's in a, right. in a substantial leadership position in Idaho politics. I would say that we have some very specific Idaho dynamics in the form of like the Idaho Freedom Foundation, which is, you know, a very, very far right wing libertarian lobby group that kind of frames itself as a think tank. Uh, it, it has connections to larger national groups like the State Policy Network and the American Legislative Exchange Council and, you know, other other kind of libertarian think tank lobby, bill mill, whatever you want to call them, groups around the country. But they do they, they do exercise an outsized uh, amount of power in Idaho, and they really do kind of shift the shift the weather in very important ways at the state house. So that's something that I think is a little bit unique to Idaho. Just the immense power that is wielded by this sort of private group. <laughs> I don't know how much of that is Trumpian necessarily either. Uh, it's a little bit homegrown in a sense, though it does have these national connections. Although I, I mean, the, the the Trump the Trump effect uh, did have an impact, I think in activating some lawmakers uh, in terms of their willingness to engage in extreme rhetoric and realizing that that is going to get them votes. So there's been an emboldening that happened around then, but I don't, I don't see a direct Trump like echo chamber. I think that there's a lot of individualism in Idaho and even, even among like extreme conservatives, they still want to have their own brand. Okay. So it's like a bunch of different flavors of Protestantism. Basically it's, it's not a lot of orthodoxy. (laughs) So let's start in Kootenai County. There's the North Idaho College Board of Trustees coup that we've talked about a couple episodes ago. 
Cooney County has like a national reputation for conservatism, but this was the first time a historically nonpartisan elected office got hyperpartisan. And then since we last talked, you know, there was spoke with an education reporter from the Chronicle of Higher Education. It was unclear if the behavior of the trustees would potentially harm the accreditation of NIC. Well, the accrediting governing body has since launched an investigation into trustee conduct, so it's very much in jeopardy. Whether it'll happen or not, there is now a question about NIC's accreditation as an institution of higher education. And then, just the other day, there's a library board race in Kootenai County that's devolved into hyperpartisanism as well. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, I mean, little drips and drabs here. Uh, I have a a friend of mine works in the library district as an employee, uh, and she just talked about how insane it was to go to work at the library and have it be this sort of political battleground uh, in, in partisan politics. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with like the pandemic and you know mask mandates. We had the same thing happen here in Bonner County, where our library board race was every bit as partisan as the one in Kootenai. And we had, you know, what I would call fringe, but they're no longer fringe uh, these days, <laughs> but fringe, fringe conservative candidates who have no experience whatsoever with library management trying to get on the board specifically to push back against, you know, what they consider to be sort of liberal policies from, you know, touching on everything from mask mandates and pandemic response to just sort of the nature of the material they have in the library. So, yeah, I mean, what's happening in Kootenai County is also happening in Bonner County. And I, th- I think it's the same kind of cast of characters who are sort of ginning all this up. We had the same thing with our, li- or our hospital board as well. I mean, the hospital board turned into a partisan wow. race in Bonner County. That's kind of scary. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I don't want libraries to go away. But down in Kootenai County, there's the incumbents on this library board are a guy named Bob Fish and a woman named Michelle Veal. Bob has a quote in a spokesman article I'll link to that says, uh, I'm not a politician. I'm a library advocate. I've never had anybody run against me. He's just a guy who loves libraries. So here's where the, the, the various orthodoxies or the orthodoxy versus the sort of reform movement, if we want to call it that, is really fascinating because Bob Fish is one of those Republicans from Southern California that's moved up to Kootenai County in the last few years and his like specifically was elected in 2017 on fiscal transparency. So the Idaho legislature allows for a 3% tax to, uh, to fund libraries. And he ran on basically not taking that tax, making the public library basically pay its own way. So you would think that this guy would have, you know, the credentials. Instead, he's being challenged by a woman named Rochelle Otteson, who said, quote, I don't think public libraries need to be an extension of scriptural knowledge only but they sure shouldn't be forcing taxpayer funding of satanic agendas that lead to the destruction of our nation. So I hear that. And I think one of two things, I think either moral majority satanic panic from the eighties, or I think QAnon. So is there, there is still like a moral majority tinge in Idaho around that kind of conservative stuff or like, how would you characterize people invoking Satanism? (laughs) Well, how would I characterize uh, crazy uh, for one thing, but um, (laughs) I think I think you're right to pick up on kind of this moral majority concept. Usually, as it gets expressed in the Idaho legislature over the years, has been in the context of abortion. And, you know, sure. we've had things like the ultrasound bill uh, that was very, very controversial right. a couple of years back. Uh, you don't see it much uh, expressed in terms of, you know, straight up satanic literature being pushed through the, the library system. So you may be onto something with a, a QAnon connection there. Uh, I can I can say in Bonner County, our library board race, which, as I was mentioning, got really partisan, had more to do with sort of like rock ribbed, like patriotism, 
Like we, we had one candidate who had just moved here from Texas, uh, you know, two, three years ago with his qualification that he listed uh, was basically that he's a conservative. You know, it was like, well, you know, what do you know about libraries? It's like, well, I'm a conservative. That's what, that's my qualification. Um, he got up in front of a, a meeting of the library board and basically said, you know, like libraries need to be a place where Americans learn how to love America. And that's their, that's, that's their function. So it had less to do with, you know, kind of Satanism and more to do with uh, commie socialism, you know, or, or at least the perception of it. So Vanessa Robinson, who's the other person running to unseat the incumbents, said a very similar thing. She told the Central Committee that she was running for the, so the Republican Central Committee backed both of these insurgent candidates, the uh, Republican Central Committee of Kootenai County. I, I'm guessing when she was courting their endorsement, she said she was running for the seat, quote, so that I can be proactive in keeping our wonderful community red. And she meant red conservative, not red communist, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's so it seems like that's the case here, too, where it's like, no, what we really need to do, we need governance and governors who are basically helping ensure that our houses of public learning are also shrines to American exceptionalism, patriotism, stuff like that. It's a little bit John Birchie yeah, um, yeah. is how I would identify that strain of, of thinking less moral majority, more John Birch, yeah. but they're both, they're, they're both present. I mean, both, both those strains of thinking are very present yeah. uh, throughout, throughout Idaho politics, but I'm sure we're going to get to this later, but you know, sort of the fracturing of the Republican and conservative movement in general yeah. in Idaho, it, I think is one of the big stories that's happened over the past five, six years. So Sandpoint is in the first legislative district of Idaho, which is like all of Boundary and a good chunk of Bonner County, kind of the northern half of Bonner County. I want to talk about that in a second because we're going to, or at the kind of closer to the end, we're going to talk about that fracture through the lens of this one specific legislation or legislative district. So for now, maybe we move south to Lewiston, where former state rep Aaron Von Ellinger is accused of raping a 19-year-old intern, which is detestable on its own, and that's bad, and that's and he's he's resigned, so it does seem like there will be some, at least there are consequences for that action. But then, State Rep Priscilla Giddings of Whitebird, Idaho, which mm-hmm. is just south of Grangeville, repeatedly doxed the victim by sharing her actual name and photo after authorities had taken pains to keep her identity secret. And she doxed the victim through a, a redoubt article. And so maybe we could talk about this horrific thing and then how the redoubt ties in and maybe even what the redoubt is. Yeah. Uh, so Priscilla Giddings is an interesting character. Uh, you know, she kind of came out of nowhere when she first ran, she's a air force veteran. Uh, I think she flew a 10 warthogs, uh, you know, those tank busting planes that look super cool. Uh, there's a bunch of them base base down. I, I love an A-10 Warhog. I mean, I'm a big Warhog fan. No, that was like my favorite plane when I was a kid. Besides, you know, <laughs> Top Gun had the, the Tomcat, but the Warthog was a personal favorite. Of mine. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of them based on in the Boise area at the, at the airfield down there. Is that Mountain Home? Uh, well, it was Mountain Home as well, but there's one uh, Gowan Field outside oh. Boise. So she's, I mean, she, she came to this to this public life, you know, from kind of a military background gotcha. and in Idaho, as I'm sure in other places, I mean, that, that goes a long way to kind of papering over whatever sort of other ideas they may have. You know, you, you see a candidate it's like, Oh, eight in warthog, you know, air force veteran. Like, Oh yeah, I'll vote for her. She's Republican. Yeah. Yeah. Military go rah, rah and all this. Well, people didn't quite realize about Priscilla Giddings. I don't think at first is uh, just how ideological she has turned out to be. The, I mean, the whole doxing incident, I, I don't have any explanation for why that 
why that happened. I don't understand. Uh, yeah. it, it would take a psychoanalyst, you know, maybe to, to think right. about why you would think that was a good idea to do. What I find more interesting is her use of the redoubt sort of information chain yeah. to, 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 to do this. Because what's really happened over the past several years, and I don't know exactly when it started, but I would estimate probably somewhere around 2014-ish, yeah. is there was a parallel kind of media ecosystem that was being constructed in Idaho and also elsewhere. I mean, we see, we see this all over the country, but in Idaho specifically, um, the redoubt constructing its own echo chamber. You know, they have, they have radio-free redoubt, uh, they, yeah, and so they have like this radio thing. I mean, they're really into ham radios, so they have like their own ham radio community where they communicate sort of off the grid, you know, and they can coordinate yeah. whatever they think they're coordinating outside of federal regulations. They have websites, they have newsletters, all this kind of thing. So they're able to live in this in this community of yeah. like-minded people outside of the mainstream, quote-unquote. And so the fact that that happened in that ecosystem, I think, is, is interesting and really kind of shows how siloed and maybe uh, self-isolating a lot of the extreme conservatives in the state are. I can't imagine that there is anyone of good faith on any part of the political spectrum of good faith, I should say, <laughs> Under, uh, underscore that of good faith, uh, who thinks that was a good idea. That thinks that that was the a doxing. Yeah, yeah, that thinks that doxing was a good, uh, reasonable move to make. But if you do it in a space like the Redoubt, you know, you're not going to get a whole lot of pushback because it's all us against them. And that's, that's why the Redoubt even exists. I mean, the definition of a Redoubt is a defensible position, right? right? I mean, it's a place you hold up, point guns out, and then hold off your enemies. Yeah. So, so to do it in a place like that meant that she had complete cover politically. And it's amazing to me that it worked as well as it did, We've actually talked about the readout before, but I just wanted to let's just bring it back here for those who need a refresher. So the American readout is a political migration movement proposed in 2011 originally. And I remember hearing about it when I was still at the Inlander. So that sounds about right to me. I left in late 2012 from the Inlander by a survivalist novelist and blogger, James Wesley Rawls, basically designating three states, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, but then also parts of basically Eastern Washington and Eastern Oregon. So roughly speaking, the state of Liberty and the state of Jefferson, plus those three existing states, as a safe haven for conservative, libertarian-leaning Christians and Jews. Rawls chose the area due to its low population and lack of natural hazards, and the idea is literally to build a compound that is self-sufficient. I think they were originally looking around the St. Mary's, Idaho region, if I'm remembering correctly, but they clearly have become a statewide movement. That sounds right. I, uh, and I also don't know that I would necessarily call them a statewide movement. I, I still think it's pretty heavily centered on the five northern counties uh, of, okay. of Idaho and, you know, some of the other places you mentioned. The trouble with the redoubt, and, you know, we've done a lot of reporting on it at The Reader. Ben Olson and Cameron Rasmussen actually did a, a really great series on it some years back uh, where they interviewed a couple of the luminaries, you know, in, in the redoubt movement. And What's so tricky about the Redoubt is that the people who are in the Redoubt will deny its existence. So if you, so if you go to one of these people, you know, who who appear to be leaders in the American Redoubt and ask them about the American Redoubt, they will say, well, there's no such thing as the American Redoubt. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk yeah. about Fight Club. So it gets really tricky to talk about it as a, a sort of a hegemonic, even a coherent view. It's almost like an impulse that that has a name. You know, it's the, yeah. it's, 
I mean, if I was to hazard a, a description of it, I would call it sort of a more high-minded attempt to describe white flight. Yeah. Which, of course, is a very old American tradition. Um, <laughs> kind of an extreme version of white flight, right? Where it's like, I'm not just going to the suburbs of my city. I'm going to a specific place where we're all sort of gathering together. Yeah, and there's a lot of redoubters, quote-unquote, you know, who, of course, would not... Uh, would not self-apply that term, uh, but there are a lot of people who sort of ascribe to these general ideas who will say, and maybe rightly so, I don't know their minds, but who will argue that, like, look, I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not a militia crazy. I'm not an anti-government activist. I just want to live and not be bothered by anybody of any type. I want to grow my garden. I don't want, you know, herbicides. I don't want vaccines and my children. I don't want to, to use the, the electrical grid. Cause I believe that, you know, whatever EMPs are going to take out the, you know, <laughs> you, you name it. I mean, it, it really is one of these sort of grab bags and it's, I think intentionally made broad so that lots of different kinds of people can ascribe to it and then not necessarily be pigeonholed. It's a really slippery concept, I think. And they did take pains, I believe. And I don't know if they've still stuck with this. It's like they include Jews specifically. So they're trying to not be an anti-Semitic organization, at least on the surface. And they, in interviews that I've read in the past, they're like, hey, if you're, if you're black, we like it. Like, whatever, as long as you're conservative. You just have to be conservative. So mm-hmm. there does seem to be a sense that a libertarian sort of strain of conservatism. So do, does that seem like a pose? Is that like a proud boys thing or is it, it doesn't seem authentic that they really aren't a racist organization. They're more of just a separatist organization for conservatives. I honestly uh, wouldn't be able to, to say I'm, yeah. sh- I, I think like I was saying, like I, I feel like it's been intentionally left very vague. So it can mean, it can mean everything and it can mean nothing. And I think that the truth is probably somewhere between everything and nothing when it comes to whatever it's <laughs> right. white, whatever, whatever, well, whatever it's sort of white ethno state implications yeah. are. I don't know, but I'm sure there are people who ascribe to these ideas who feel like that's a, a thing that needs to happen. A white, a white ethno state. Uh, and I'm sure that there are people in that sort of general ideological spectrum where they don't feel that there's a racial component. They just feel like it's a, a freedom yeah. movement. Right. Right. And I think that might be part of the attraction, right? Is that basically anybody, as long as you're conservative, I mean, that's, that's key, of course. There, I don't think there's any communist or socialist redoubters. <laughs> there may right. be, there may be, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, self-sufficiency is not necessarily a political idea or a partisan idea, but. They have a lot of ideology around, well, trying to be as self-sufficient as possible. That also might, means buying locally. So it, it actually, they do have some sort of at least liberal mindedness around like, shopping at farmer's markets rather than shopping at uh, mm-hmm. grocery stores that I've heard. So that part is fascinating to me because I, I do think in a place like, you know, North Idaho, Northern Eastern Washington, that you see a lot of back to the land folks of different political stripes. And it did at least seem like the redoubt was like, yeah, we're, as long as you're, if you're making, you know, organic food, <laughs> growing veggies, we're and you're selling them at the farmer's market, we're going to be decent neighbors at least. Mm-hmm. So back to the doxing of the 19 year old rape victim, So anti-extremism groups have called for an ethics investigation. The ACLU of Idaho sent a petition with 6,000 signatures calling for her resignation. And she was like, sure, I'll resign from being state rep right after I win the race for lieutenant governor. And so she jumped into the race for lieutenant governor. And we're going to talk about the current lieutenant governor in a sec because that's also an amazing story. But does Giddings, so she's, is she a first term legislator? 
Yeah, I'd have to go back and check that, but I'm pretty sure this is her first term. So whether it's like, and we'll talk about McGeehan in a second, because she's also first term, the current lieutenant governor, it seems like an, an element of this that's pretty interesting to me is these are really quickly rising stars. Like nobody knew about Giddings until pretty recently, and now she's running for lieutenant governor. So I guess I got two questions. One, does she have a chance in hell, do you think, or do you, is it too early to tell whether she could win the lieutenant governor race? Well, if you want to jump into that race, I have a ton to say about it. I kind of feel like we have to talk about current lieutenant governor and then, so maybe let's, let's hold on that for a second then. Sure. So we know, so she's sort of in this, in one of these lanes that we're still going to discuss about of like the, the, the fissure of the local Republican party down there, the statewide Republican party. Is there other wild stuff from central Idaho that we've missed or kind of that central lower panhandle region? Yeah. Um, so I think Moscow, right, oh, in, right. In, in Lataw County, which is one of the only reliably, you know, blue counties in the state right. <clears throat> with its university population and you know, a lot of younger folks there who tend to vote Democrat. I mean, in fact, I think there's only maybe four counties in the whole state of Idaho that are reliably you know, democratic or blue or whatever. And Latah is one of them. Uh, But it's also home to this group called Christ church. Oh, yep. Um, And and you're familiar with these guys. It sounds like a little bit. Yeah. Uh, One of those, well, it's, you know, it's one of your sort of like wild and woolly ultra conservative evangelical outfit. Um, You know, the pastor is this guy named Douglas Wilson. Uh, His, his claim to fame is a pamphlet that he wrote called Southern slavery as it was. Oh, right. It was a, he's a slavery apologist. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he argues that slavery wasn't all that bad, that it actually fostered, um, and I, I pulled his direct quote here, uh, quote, genuine affection between the races, oh, end yeah. quote, uh, that was lost after the Civil War and has yet to be regained. And, of course, he, when he co-wrote that with Steve Wilkins, who's the co-founder of the League of the South, which wow. the SPLC and the Anti-Defamation League and anybody else with you know eyes to see and ears to hear considers white nationalist, neo-Confederate, and white supremacist. <laughs> yeah, right. So his group, uh, Christchurch, uh, they've been causing all kinds of controversy and consternation in Moscow for years. But during the pandemic, like the sort of the onset of the pandemic last year, uh, they got into the sort of the COVID nineteen protest game. Right. Last September and. Uh, putting on a bunch of anti-mask, like emergency order protests outside the Moscow City Hall. And they turned ugly. Um, and you can look it up and you will find news reports and videos showing essentially a street brawl. And it landed a couple of those uh, church leaders in jail for resisting arrest. And now they're suing, claiming that their First Amendment rights were violated. Oh, wow. And that's that's ongoing. I mean, the reporting on that is as recent as March of this year. So whatever kind of court battle goes on around that is, is going to be something else to, to watch. Wow. And I don't know that, I don't know that Christchurch and, and those guys really have a whole lot of statewide pull, but it does kind of illustrate what you were talking about with sort of that moral majority, like yeah. evangelical, that, that is a very powerful subsect or subgroup in Idaho conservative politics, especially organizing around COVID-19. That was where they kind of got their heyday. Well, that, that happened in Washington, too, where a lot of different groups that aren't immediately, I wouldn't have, would have made, like, maybe not the, the strangest bedfellows, but they're not people that I think hang out all the time, galvanized around anti-mask protests. And it seemed, 
you know, the generous version of that is that they all had the same concern and they all came together and into this like a, a quasi political coalition and, and, you know, made their voices heard as is allowed by the first amendment, <laughs> the cynical reading of that. And maybe you could give me a, your read on if this is sort of similar in Idaho was that a bunch of these different groups saw it as an, as a recruitment opportunity in addition to being aligned with it, you know, but it's like how, who can we pull into our, our white nationalist church who can we pull into our libertarian you know mindset through the through the um the lens of the overreach of the state well yeah i think that there's definitely that that cynical part of it i mean the the political gamesmanship that went on around the covid19 pandemic and continues to to go on right you you referenced janice mcgee and the lieutenant governor i mean she's she's sort of making her making her bed in this whole like COVID protest, government overreach argument. That wasn't, that was definitely an opportunity for a lot of these groups to find something. uh, It was, it was easy to exploit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no one liked being in lockdown. No one was happy wearing a mask. Like no one was happy with a global (laughs) pandemic. (laughs) Right. There there was no one on the side of the pandemic. Yeah. Right. And so it was very easy to come out against all this stuff and then to kind of, you know, poke people and tease them into, you know, into anger right. and fear. I mean, the fear was already there. Of course. It, yeah. it was, it was just very simple to leverage it into various political channels where you turn a, a mask, you know, into some kind of statement of uh, you know, socialism. Yeah. And, you know, you turn a vaccine into some kind of like mind control, global cabal sort of thing. It was a rich feeding ground for all these different <laughs> totally. groups. Um, to find their pet issue and their and their little hobby horse or whatever, and whip it into something that looked an awful lot like fighting for freedom, fighting for liberty, fighting for rights, uh, but uh, really was just a ploy to, as you say, you know, kind of pull recruitment. And I, I'm not going to say that these people didn't necessarily believe these things. I mean, I'm sure they did some. Right. Of course. If, yeah. I mean, I'm, not everybody's walking around, you know, cynically manipulating these things. Um, well, it's it's really like if you if you if you're worried about what your government's doing with your health enough to be skeptical of a, of a, a medical product like a vaccine, and that can be an earnest belief. Then the group is like, you know, it's like okay, so you've got then you all join a rally, and it's almost like like a swap meet or like a little like a church market where you're going from stall to stall, and it's like, well, the you know the, the global cabal. The problem there is the Jews, and then you go to a different one, and it's like, oh, the problem there is just big government or the deep state or whatever, which might also include Jewish flavoring, but maybe not. You know, like there's, mm-hmm. it did seem like an opportunity to just be like, okay, here's, we all agree that there's a symptom, you know, that feels like tyranny, but then there can be a, a bunch of different causes that are all sort of being jockeyed by these various groups that have, you know, different interests. Yeah. Well, I think that among the, among the more cynical operators in Idaho, if not the most cynical operator in Idaho is, is got to be the Idaho freedom foundation. And they jumped immediately onto the COVID-19 thing. Uh, and immediately were some of the, I mean, they organized the first rallies against the lockdown orders and they were the ones who whipped up, you know, the first major protests in Boise. Uh, they had one in, in Sandpoint at the South end of the long bridge brought a bunch of, Health Freedom Idaho anti-vaccine people there. I mean, Representative Heather Scott from Blanchard, you yeah. know, the notorious sort of Matt Shea lieutenant. Um, she of the Malheur occupation. She of the Sharia law. 
<laughs> um, I mean, her re- her resume her resume is incredible when it comes to finding anything and everything, whatever kind of threat or terror du jour, and kind of writing it to endless headlines. She was there. Um, you know, you had the Second Amendment people were there. Right. The Idaho Freedom Foundation really, really kind of like helped provide a, a, a nexus point for a lot of these groups, especially as it related to the COVID-19 lockdowns and, and the governor's like restrictions. And they did that entirely for political gain. I mean, that's why they exist. Like yeah. they're. <laughs> this would be a good time since we're kind of getting to that statewide stuff. Maybe maybe dive in and tell us a little bit about who the Idaho Freedom Foundation are and what their goals are. And we were chatting. You basically made it sound like they're not really a lobbying group. They're not really a think tank. They are trying to be journalists. So talk through all that. Like, what are they, What are all the things they're trying to do? What are all the things they're trying to pass themselves off as? And how are they moving in the political space? It's such an interesting group. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but what it is, is it's a free market think tank, like I mentioned earlier. Um, yeah. Hardcore libertarian. Uh, it's helmed by this uh, man named Wayne Hoffman, who used to be a newspaper reporter. He was actually one of the more highly regarded reporters in the state for uh, a fairly long time, um, but kind of traded in his reporter's notebook for kind of a libertarian firebrand shtick. And what they do is that they operate as almost like a shadow central committee for the whole state conservative infrastructure. They have they have what they call the Freedom Index, which is a a ranking of all the different lawmakers in the state house uh, based on how closely they sort of align with the freedom foundations principles, which are essentially no government is the best government. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that index has, has sort of morphed into a cudgel that can be used during the primaries to sort of weed out Republicans who aren't perceived to be conservative enough. Because except for those five States or five counties that you mentioned, just to be clear, like, all of statewide politics in Idaho and most of county level politics is all Republican control. There is a desire to sort of identify a bunch of different flavors within conservatism. Since everybody's technically a Republican, there's a desire to create sort of litmus tests to see if you're the right strain of conservative or if you're conservative enough. Is that, does that sound about right? Yeah. And that's really what characterizes Idaho politics. Unlike many other States is that we live in a single party state Yeah, and it has been that way for a very long time. And, you know, we referred to that piece by Ann Helen Peterson from BuzzFeed, <clears throat> when Republicans have nobody to, to fight with, I think, or something right, like right, that, right. is what happens, right? I mean, if you have no, if you have no opponents on sort of the left or whatever, like yeah. across the aisle, if you will, right. then you're going to start finding enemies within. And the Idaho Freedom Foundation, I guarantee you, does not spend one minute of its day thinking about the Idaho Democrats. <laughs> right. They're thinking about other Republican lawmakers and trying to figure out which ones are not conservative enough and then putting pressure on them to weed them out to enforce like this fidelity you know, to an overarching ideology. And it's interesting um, to, to note also that they're kind of the, they were the ones who pioneered what I would call sort of the parallel media ecosystem in Idaho. Okay. They started this thing called the uh, was it the Idaho Reporter. It's, it's an online news blog, basically, you know, yeah. quote unquote news, which devotes itself to sort of covering issues that the IFF cares about and for exposing the transgressions of other Republicans that aren't conservative enough, stuff like that. They tried to set themselves up as a uh, as a member of the mainstream media in Idaho, and they were denied press credentials. 
uh, at the state house because they're a C four lobbying organization. Exactly, and that's and they they hate that. They absolutely hate it when people call them a lobby group. They frame themselves as a think tank, you know, as an educational organization. The degree to which that's true, I guess, depends on your perspective. But <laughs> but it's also it's um, not it's not like that that does happen. In a, so if you think about the Center for American Progress, which is a left leaning national think tank that Neera Tandon was the head of until recently, they used to have sort of a journalism or a blog arm called uh, Think Progress. So this is actually they're probably maybe even taking a a page out of the playbook of of sort of more national sort of liberal Democrat playbooks and it's an incredibly effective way to be like okay cool if you like the sort of stuff the freedom foundation's about why wouldn't you want our news service sort of thing yeah and i understand that other groups like this exist throughout the country but the the thing i'll return to is that the idaho freedom foundation wields just such immense power over idaho politics and i was just looking the other day or actually this morning i'm sorry um that so chuck winder He's the Senate president pro tem. He's a Boise Republican, uh, powerful member of the of the Republican caucus in the state house. Well respected, I think. You know, sort of yeah. among the the usual political class. Uh, he actually said June second, right, saying that the Idaho Freedom Foundation's influence is quote one of the biggest threats unquote that Idaho has to its democracy. He said also this is being quoted in the in the Statesman. So the biggest paper in the state based based in Boise. So Winder also says, you know, quote, I think my greatest disappointment is how many legislators are willing to follow the direction of the Idaho Freedom Foundation. To me, that's one of the biggest threats we have to our democracy in our state. We've got a small group of people that are very vocal, that are very aggressive toward anyone that doesn't agree with them, end quote. So that's how much influence the Idaho Freedom Foundation wields. And it's it's definitely sort of the substructure, right, out of which people like Priscilla Giddings and Janice McGeehan and Heather Scott, and, you know, others of that sort of extreme right wing of Idaho politics, that's, that's the, the, the substructure out of which that they operate. And it provides, it provides them cover, it provides them, um, you know, their own sort of media channels, it provides them with access to donors, to connections to national organizations, you know, which can, which can be anything from, you know, thinkers, national luminaries in these, in these fields to, you know, actual funding in some cases, I don't know, they, they may be able to find donors through those channels and then even model legislation. So we're going to talk about, so we still haven't gotten to the first legislative district, but you said there's a guy, uh, the state Senator from your guys' legislative district. You kind of described him, his name is Jim Woodward is like a, as like a rock ribbed kind of traditional Republican, maybe, I don't know, Reagan Republican or just like a tr- more a traditional conservative, like pro business gentleman rancher sort of guy <laughs> uh i would i would say he's uh, a little more nuanced even than that um uh, jim he's a lifelong idahoan unlike unlike a lot of uh, well both of the other district one lawmakers you know representative heather scott and representative sage dixon are both weirdly from ohio weird um but yeah, I know. <laughs> that's a coincidence, I, I think. Um, but Jim, you know, Jim's born and raised in, in Idaho, grew up in Sandpoint, grew up in Bonners Ferry, went to Bonners Ferry High School, went on, served 21 years in the Navy, serving on Trident nuclear submarines, got his degree in, I think it was engineering at University of Idaho. He's a construction guy. He owns his own construction company here locally. And I, I don't see him as... He's definitely a conservative and he's definitely a Republican. Uh, he's much more of a traditional, not even Reagan Republican so much as an Idaho Republican. Gotcha. Uh, 
I mean, he, he recognize he doesn't like regulation, you know, yeah. but he also recognizes that regulation probably has to exist in some form. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's just, he's easy. I mean, for lack of a better word, he's a normal guy. <laughs> um, and it's so strange to say that. Um, but Jim does not get down in the ideological dirt for this kind of stuff. He's not going to be one out there, you know, posing with a Confederate battle flag like Heather right, Scott right. did at a campaign event in Prince River. He's not going to travel to the Malheur Wildlife Reservation to stand with Ammon Bundy, you know, right. and, and all those guys, which, you know, Heather Scott and Sage Dixon both did. Um, I mean, he's, he's just not going to go there. Right. His, his philosophy is that sort of small government Republican idea, right? That, yeah. You want to keep taxes as low as you can. Uh, you know, you're going to try to trim regulations to, you know, whatever they're going to be reasonably trimmed to. Yeah. Uh, you're going to balance the budgets. You're going to fund things like roads. You're going to fund things like schools. You're going to do your work at the state house for, you know, three months, and then you're going to go home and be a citizen lawmaker. And he's, he, he does a lot of constituent service. You know, he, he's willing to write op-eds to various newspapers, including mine. I mean, he writes for the Daily Bee. Uh, he's, he's communicative. Uh, Heather Scott doesn't speak to anyone yeah. except for, except for Redoubt News. Right. Sage Dixon is, is much more, uh, much more willing to engage outside of that sort of Redoubt bubble. So and you, you got to give him credit for that. I mean, he, he, I think he does a better job of constituent service than Heather Scott. Yeah. Uh, but Jim is extremely popular. He, I mean, he got 22,000 some votes in the last election out of a uh, voting population of like 37,000, I think if I was just, if that's right, a, po- a yeah, possible voting population. So that's like thereabouts, a yeah. super, super majority almost total population of Bonner County is like 46, 47,000, something like that. Yeah. So Jim, Jim got 22,000 plus votes in his last election. Sage, uh, Dixon got 19 or 19,000 ish, something like that. And that's about the same for Heather. Heather Scott, Heather Scott got the lowest of the three. Got it. And meanwhile, Jim Woodward is now being targeted by the Bonner County Republican Central Committee. Well, that's what I wanted to bring uh, up. So he, but he, yeah. so despite being, I think what everybody would identify as like a traditional Republican, he does not score particularly well on the Freedom Foundation's Freedom Index. And as a result, like you were just about to say, he's a, he's a sitting incumbent Senate, state senator. They're demanding he be disaffiliated with the Republican Party entirely and then resign. Yes. Yes despite being and, overwhelmingly popular in Bonner County too. Yes. And very well respected at the state house. Uh, I think people on both sides of, of the aisle, such as they are in Idaho, think that he's a person who is more solutions oriented. Like he's willing to compromise. He wants to get down and talk to people about stuff. And he focuses on, you know, sort of the core issues facing the state. Now the Bonner County Republican central committee, which is something like 30 people uh, has decided to you know call for him to be ousted and disaffiliated, whatever that is. Uh, and they have a five point resolution that they adopted sort of proving why they think uh, that this should happen. And two of those five points directly reference the Idaho freedom foundation Wow. and, and his rankings on the freedom index. And I think a lot of Republicans locally here. And I, in fact, I know a lot of Republicans here locally looked at that and said, this has gone way too far. Like, yeah, this doesn't represent what we, what we think of as Republicans, even as conservatives, this is becoming, um, you know, a little bit totalitarian in a way, wow. these, these purity, these purity tests, you know, and then there's just, there's this group, you know, the Idaho freedom foundation is not elected. Uh, nobody even knows where their money comes from. 
they, they, they have famously sort of resisted telling people where their money comes from. And here they are sort of dictating not only policy, but who even gets to be on the ballots wow. you know, for, the, for these primaries and who gets to re- retain their seats, you know. And in Idaho, where the Republicans closed the primary in 2012, uh, meaning that you can only vote in the Republican primary if you affiliate as a Republican. Right. So you can't, you can't, Jim Woodward's not getting any help from, you know, Democrats in the, in the County who well, might just see him as a lesser of two evils. Unless Democrats are registering as Republicans, which right. is something that the Republican party has deeply resented ever since they closed their primary. And it, I know it happens. It happens all of, all the time. Like, right. There are so many Democrats who register as Republicans in Bonner County. And the reason for that is that the only races that matter because of this closed primary are the primaries. Right. I mean, the general elections have become foregone conclusions. Whoever wins the Republican primary, that's basically what the general is going to be. That's a pretty good stopping place. <laughs> like I said, this was a jazz odyssey. I had a structure in mind for this interview, kind of got shot to hell. That sometimes happens when you're talking about such complex, disparate topics. And when you're talking about them with somebody who knows as much as Zach does about this stuff, it's so fascinating. You just want to chase every rabbit down every rabbit hole. But I don't know, maybe this, we bit off more than we can chew, but hopefully you're enjoying it because Zach's an incredibly compelling person. But I think right at the end here, we started getting around to some of the unifying dynamics of all these disparate controversies and strange alliances. And then right at the beginning next week, we're going to dive deep into the first legislative district, which like we said, is all of Boundary County, the northernmost county, and about half of Bonner County, which is where Sandpoint is, the second most northern county. Sort of understanding the historic political dynamics there and and social dynamics, because these things are all intertwined, right? It's like you can't really divorce politics from society, from culture, although sometimes we do and sometimes that it feels convenient or it's easy to just talk about blue versus red. There's usually really, really deep societal connections to the way people feel about things, how they were raised and therefore how they vote. So we're going to dive into that in in one specific legislative district and then zoom out and start having this statewide conversation and try to wrap it all together. And actually I think it does, you know, as, as, as all over the place as this first episode is, I think we're getting somewhere by the end of next week, that's going to feel pretty, well, let me just put it this way. I felt like I understood Idaho and all of these disparate, seemingly unconnected, seemingly even at odds ideologically strains. I feel like I understood the whole picture a lot, lot better. But you know what? You don't have to take my word for it. Just listen next week. And also, if you like this episode, if you like next week's episode, if you've liked our previous episodes, you can support us by going to rangemedia.co dot com. Nope. Rangemedia.co slash subscribe. God, I'll get that one day. Also, as always, I want to thank Connor Bacon for doing the interview edits. Uh, Thank you so much, my man. And also this week for the first time, we got writing and research help from Tweezung, local artist, translator, all around badass. Round of applause for Twee and everybody else. All right. That's it for me, everyone. Have a good week. Bye.
You know, you don't really think about it until you find yourself randomly late at night cutting up a song in order to make a bunch of dumb Idaho jokes, but the B-52s were one of the weirdest bands ever. So weird. (laughs) 